everyone. Welcome to Back Talk. This is a podcast where two feminist folks、um, chat about pop culture news, and I'm Amy Lam, the associate editor. Which means、uh, this week I'm super excited because、um, the latest print issue of Bitch Magazine just came out. It's the Blood and Guts issue. Yay! Yes. And I'm Sarah Merk. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media. Which this me this means that、um, this week I've literally been dreaming about Twitter. I, had, I, had,、oh、I have Twitter dreams where I'm like reading Twitter and scrolling through it and、oh. retweeting stuff, and I wake up and I'm like, no,、uh, that sounds horrifying. I'm gonna spend all day doing this. And also, are you sure you're dreaming and it's not like your awake state, but you wish you were sleeping? <laughs> no, no. Sadly, this is my life. <laughs>、uh, so each week we get together and、um, we talk about two big pop culture news stories. And at the end of the show, we talk about one thing we've read, one thing we've watched, and one thing we're listening to.、Um, and this week, we're talking about、um, clueless white guys. <laughs> that's, that's the theme of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Starting off, we're talking about、uh, both Matt Damon's thoughts on diversity, and、um, a white poet who took the name of、uh, an Asian person from his high school to submit his poetry under that、yes. as his Asian pen name. Oh, but first we talk about our favorite pop culture moments. From yes, the week. <laughs> my favorite personal moments.、Um, I was at a really cool conference this weekend called XOXO. That's an art and technology festival. I can't afford a ticket to it, so I was volunteering,、uh, which is actually a really great gig. It's here in Portland, Oregon, and it's a bunch of internet luminaries、uh, fly into Portland and give this really cool talk. Uh, this whole conference, which made made up of talks, and so many interesting people were there: Anita Sarkeesian, Zoe Quinn,、um, Mallory Ortberg from The Toast, and Lisa Hanawalt. And that's who I was going to、yeah. say. My probably my favorite talk of the weekend was by、uh, the artist Lisa Hanawalt,、um, who I know from doing. She does really beautiful, surreal, bizarre comics,、uh, and she also works on the show BoJack Horseman. It's like her designs for the show. Um, I just liked hearing her talk about anxiety. Basically, that she started off the talk saying, "I am a horrible artist. I feel like a horrible artist all of the time," and it's kind of a downer. But it's also good to hear somebody who I really like, whose work I admire, say, "I feel bad about my work all the time because I feel bad about my work all the time," and people are constantly being like, "Why do you feel bad? You should do good. You do good stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm just like filled with anxiety and." <laughs> And like I'm upset about the stuff I didn't do well enough. Yeah. And so it was really reflected in her talk, saying, "Hey, I'm like a I'm like a really successful artist, but I feel like I'm not doing enough and I'm not doing it well enough." Yeah. I mean, like if you check out Lisa Hanawalt's work, you can see she's clearly talented,、um, but it just feels like we are all members in this awful club of club anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice to see people talk about it openly.、Yeah. <laughs> uh, my pop culture week、uh, news of the week is also kind of animation related.、Um, uh, my TV went out and I couldn't watch TV, so I was stuck watching Netflix.、Uh, and then I was like, "What am I gonna watch?" And so I am newly fan, a new fan of. Bob's Burgers. That's what I was hoping you were gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I love Bob's Burgers. Yeah, because I've been on like a huge animation hiatus because、um, I don't like any of Seth MacFarlane's work, and I feel、oh, yeah. like his stuff dominates network television. And I thought Bob's Burgers it looks so much like Family Guy. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's just gonna be like Family Guy. Yeah, and I was just like, I'm not gonna do this. But then I, the reason why I was like, I'm gonna give this a chance, and I, and I'm, I'm one of those people who will watch from episode season one, episode one, to see how it goes,、um, was because I've heard so much about Tina Belcher. <laughs> 
that I was like, I need to check out who this young lady is who loves butts and is like, um, you know, going through her sexual awakening as like a, a preteen or whatever. And the show is like really sweet and um, it's well written and like well thought out and it's actually even like really funny too and it's nice to like be able to like watch a good animated series um because i used to really love the simpsons as a kid but like as i've grown older it's just i have it hasn't grown with me i guess um and i just really love like the pacing of like all these like structural things that i really love about bob's burger and the stories is really are, is like a really it's just a really fun show yeah, if, if you haven't if you haven't already started watching Bob's Burgers, public service announcement: it is not Family Guy. Yeah, you may think it looks like Family Guy, but it is a totally different, really sweet, wonderful show. I love it too, and I, it took me a long time to come around to watching it and actually getting started. Until people were were multiple people were like, "You have to watch this." Yeah, I, I love Tina Belcher. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's like her catchphrase. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so I was kind of on the fence about whether to talk about this uh, initially because I was like, oh, this seems like a very insular thing within um, the literary world, but it actually got so much play, even in mainstream outlets like uh, Washington Post and New York Times. Um, so the story is that um, there's an annual anthology called the Best, called Best American Poetry, and it just came out, and um, each issue is guest edited by a writer. And this most recent one was guest edited by Sherman Alexie, who's a Native American writer, who's um, well known for being like outspoken about uh, social justice issues. So when he put this together, I think folks were excited to see like who has he chosen to be in this like best American anthology, best American poetry anthology. And when it came out, um, it turns out that a poem was published under the pen name of Yifan Chow. And in the bio for the poet, it turns out that Yifan Chow is a pseudonym for this middle-aged white man named Michael Derrick Hudson. And um, in his own bio, he explains his usage of the pseudonym as, uh, as, a, as a quote strategy to place this poem. Because this particular poem that's included in the, in, in the anthology, he says that it got rejected over 40 times um, under his his white man name and uh and then when he used Yifan Chao it got rejected just merely nine times and it got picked up by a journal and um and that's how uh, Sherman Alexie found it because Sherman Alexie's job is to basically read as many poems as he can that was printed in the year in the year prior and so he scoured everything reading literary journals and uh internet online journals and he Sherman Alexie was then also was like kind of taken to task because when it came out that Michael Derrick Hudson um, effectively performed Yellowface, and like in his bio for explaining why he did this, it's like a very cynical view of liter like the literary world, like you know, using um, a Chinese name and uh, Chinese identity as a strategy to place to place his poem. It's just it's so insane because people like our names and our identities aren't strategies for getting you into like you know getting published or getting you into places it's like these it's like something that people of color live with and for him to have done that it was just such like a huge slap in the face to writers of color and Sherman Alexie who's a very outspoken writer of color had to 
then explained this and he talks about his um his strategy for how he chose the poems and you know he gave himself like 11 rules or something and um some of the rules were like i will not choose uh any poems by very close friends and um i will pay particular attention to folks who have been historically underrepresented like women or people of color and so when it came to that he realized he got the bio and after because he had already selected the poem um by the person named Yifan Chao so he thought like I have a poem from an Asian American writer and then when the bio came in that it was this white man masquerading as Yifan Chao Sherman and Lexi had to like make the tough decision whether or not to include the poem and uh and he did um and a lot of I think writers of color don't you know fault him for that but we all do agree that he made a big mistake because he conflated like white nepotism to something that he called quote racial nepotism um but that's like a logical fallacy because for a writer of color to sort of like as a gatekeeper to open that space up for other writers of color it's not nepotism it's like it's working against an institutional racism that's kept folks out or like um institutional misogyny that's kept women out of this this world so it's just been this crazy thing and i've read like almost everything piece that was possible about this issue because as a as a especially as an asian american writer um you know it's just this i, I didn't i didn't grow up reading other asian american writers no less writers of color period like in school um you know i i read so many white people and so many white men you know and then to think that like um maybe like there is more of a space now however minute there is for writers of color to get their work published and for this this awful person to take a pen name and to like use that as as a tool to like sneak in and and to also uh, he thinks he's being so smart like making a comment on like the the literature landscape it's just so infuriating yeah i think Sherman Alexi was really like between a rock and a hard place here because once he accepted the poem it was on him to to figure out well I like this poem should I kick it out of the anthology what should we do about this and he wrote a whole long blog post explaining his thoughts behind choosing the poems that he did and I really admired the the thoughtfulness that he put into trying to create the collection where he really went beyond the people that he knew to look for new people, to look for people he didn't know anything about, so that he could help publish them and help promote their careers. And that, I think, is really admirable. And it's sad that basically somebody used uh, that to dupe him. <laughs> you know, right. I think that uh, this, was a, this was a poem, that this was a poem and a poet that wasn't well known, that, you know, didn't have a history. And so, like, Sherman Alexi was looking for people like that to help support and to help promote and to say like you know what you don't have a long history of publishing but like we're going to put you in the best american poetry anthology and it seems like really um duplicitous of somebody to misrepresent themselves in that way in order to try and sneak in there and what it speaks to i mean there was a really great article about this where was that by by, by jenny Zhang. jenny Zhang, yeah. Zhang, yeah yeah on buzzfeed it's called they pretend to be us while pretending we don't exist and like the first line of the piece is quote to be other in america is to be coveted and hated at the same time yeah that's a really beautiful article about her experience in an mfa program um she's an asian american writer too and how people in her mfa program white people in her mfa program kept saying like you're gonna have an easy time getting your stuff published because you're an asian american woman and that's what people are looking to publish these days like wow you're so lucky you're gonna get published easily but at the same time would turn around and pigeonhole her whenever in all of her writing. So whenever she wrote about an Asian American character, people in her MFA program would be like, 
I love how you write this this so autobiographically. And she's like, it wasn't an autobiography. That was just another Asian American character. <laughs> and so, right. And so there's like this real, I think there's this real perception among a lot of white people and especially white dudes these days of feeling like they're being discriminated against. Right. And feeling like they're being um, displaced from some from some positions that they are entitled to have. And therefore, it's okay for them to to misrepresent themselves in order to take that back. Right. I mean, like, uh, as recently as, like, um, I was reading a piece, a couple pieces by Roxane Gay. She, like, um, did research about this. And uh, in 2012, she published a piece about how, um, about the numbers of uh, books that are reviewed in the New York Times. Like, that's a big um, outlet to have your book being talked about right and in 2011 she found that almost 90 percent of the books that were reviewed in the new york times were written by white writers wow yeah so i mean like those are the numbers like that's the reality and that and then like in 2012 she did another piece talking about how um uh in out of the all of the like the weekly top 10 bestseller lists uh in the new york times out of the 124 writers that were featured on those lists three were people of color wow you know, and so so and this it, perception just isn't accurate. I mean, there's this whole like feeling of uh, you hear all the time from from guys these days, like cries of misandry and cries of saying like, oh, we're being pushed out or discriminated against because there's because of policies like affirmative action and policies that do um, sort of push people to look beyond white dudes as writers, like Sherman Lexi was doing here, trying to say like, hey, I'm going to look people who have been historically underrepresented, and for white male authors to interpret that as saying oh I'm going to intentionally discriminate you and not let you get into this anthology is just completely incorrect when you actually look at the numbers. Right and like and Sherman Alexi was somewhat successful in this because uh, after all and said and done in the anthology uh, 60% of the poets were women and 40% were people of color writers of color so in that way he was successful but um, and of course this happening it, it was an awful thing to happen. He shouldn't have published that poem. Um, but in a way, it, it's good in that it's opened up this like wider conversation that I feel like people of color or writers of color have amongst ourselves. Um, but to like really talk about what this means for um, f- for when writers of color are often, like you said, pigeonholed or, or told that like uh, their identity and their ethnicity is like uh, can be a marketing ploy. But the reality is that, like, actually nobody or actually it's really hard to break in because of our names, you know, like um, like our names and our identity for much of our lives, not just in our writing lives, can be hindrances in so many ways. And for this guy to just like put it on when it suits him and when it's beneficial to him and then take it off in the rest of his you know, daily life, it's just it's 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 really um it just drives me mad, <laughs> and, you know, and, and it just like produces so much rage. And I, I feel like for myself in particular, because it's like uh, if, if I could be a white person, <laughs> I would in like a second and I'll have to deal with all this identity bullshit. Well, it's funny you mentioned that <laughs> because I want one really positive and funny response to this. has yes. been the, the Asian American Writers Workshop made this little website online. Uh, it's a little website you can go to from the Asian American Writers Workshop, and it's called a white pen name generator. You can type in your name, and it will turn it into a white pen name. Um, so, Amy, you can go there and see what your what your future can be. I've you done can, it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. What's, your, what's your white pen name? I don't know. It's just, like, some random name. And then the, cra- the craziest part about doing the white pen name generator is, like, it, it would be funny if not for the fact that, like, 
all of these names seem like really like seem like plausible names that you would see in like any literary journal or any like you know um uh like a recommended reading list or some syllabus for school you know so it was like funny to the point where it's like actually this is real life (laughs) like it's like ha 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 i'm gonna start crying yes (laughs) laugh crying right now yeah pretty much that emoji yeah i know they have an emoji for that (laughs) perfect um i also want to say that the same that asian american writers workshop is also sort of running a hashtag campaign called uh uh actual asian poets where uh, they're tweeting out lines from uh, Asian poets who are not white people in disguise as Asian poets. And yeah. that's like that's been pretty cool. I've been looking through that hashtag and there's not a lot of poets there that I know about. So it's been a, it's been a cool way for me to see new new poets and read some good poetry. And um, the worst part about this controversy is that like there are some really great uh, poets of color in the anthology. And this whole thing is like overshadowed them. Yeah. Exactly. But you can buy the anthology and just rip out Michael Derek Cousins' page <laughs> <laughs> and support the other poets in it. Um, but I guess the moral of the story is don't use identities of people of color <laughs> as a strategy to get your work out there or to like promote yourself if you're a white person. It should go without saying, but I guess it needs to be said. All right. The second topic we're talking about on today's show is Matt Damon, celebrity mansplainer. Oh, uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt Damon is uh, involved in a in a pretty cool film project called the uh, called Project Greenlight that helps um, uh, get films uh, to being made. And so they seek out sort of indie filmmakers, writers, directors people who have an idea for a film and help them shepherd it through the process to actually make it into a film. So the news this week is that um, the so Project Greenlight is now a reality TV show that's sort of following how a film gets made. And there was this clip that went viral over the last week um, where Matt Damon is in the room with this producer named Effie Brown, who's a black woman, and they're talking about diversity. And he winds up sort of shutting her down and, and having him, Matt Damon, who's a white dude, explaining what diversity means to her. Um, We can listen to the clip. Whoever this director is, the way that they're going to treat the character of Harmony, her being a prostitute, the only black person being a hooker who gets hit by her white pimp. You have you looking at this group right here and who you're picking and the story that you're doing. And I just want to make sure that we're doing our best I will say that the only team that's left with diversity is the team that announced that they like this script the most as it is. And that's Leo and Kristen. Everyone else had major problems and with I, but it. Riddle and me with exactly know. the things that you're bringing up and exactly the things that we brought up to each other. So, Not I, so true. I think on the surface, they mm-hmm. look like one thing, but they might end up giving us true something that, but- that we don't want. And when we're talking about diversity, y- you do it in the casting of the film, not in the casting of the show. Whew. Wow. Okay. Do you want well, it, the making, best well, director? Mad. You know what I mean? I'm not mad, but hang on. I'm just uh, with love in my heart. Even Leo and Kristen talked about, and we can roll it back, he said it was good having her because she has a different perspective that he wouldn't have even have thought about when talking about women. They did talk about it. Right. Uh, that's, that's totally fair. So he's saying that, like, we can cast a white director and, he, and, then, um, and then to show diversity, it can appear in the casting of the film. And so that's why, like, Effie Brown sounds so incredulous. And she's the only person of color in the room when this happens. Um, 
And she uh, produced Dear White People. <laughs> this is definitely a Dear White People moment. Right. She, she's, she's the producer behind that film, Dear White People, that came out last year. That's all about sort of like clueless white people <laughs> and uh, specifically black people on a college campus having to explain basic stuff. When Matt Damon did this, it's just very telling because he is in a like a huge position of power here and he is saying to a woman of color filmmaker that like we don't necessarily need people of color behind the camera so long as we represent them in front of the camera and that is just uh like the the logic there is just kind of it doesn't work <laughs> yeah i mean i think he could there could be specific circumstances that he's pointing to that are like in this movie look this this filmmaker did a good job but when you look at the statistics and the patterns overall this is something we've talked about on propaganda before is that um studies show that when you have a woman behind the camera you're far more likely to have women on screen and portrayed positively on screen and so um there are studies that look at this for example the amount of screen time that female characters get in movies depending on the gender of the director and the writing crew and the studies clearly show that if you have even one woman on the writing crew of a film the female characters get more screen time and are less likely to be just sex objects and actually have legitimate dialogue i mean there's like a disconnect here for matt damon because um i think that for for some white folks like it's difficult to understand that like uh, because when they gave the filmmaker his position, like he had to earn it. So there's this notion that like you can you can be on the show, Project Greenlight, and become the director of this film um, based on mer- merit. So there's this notion like amongst folks that like, you know, if you work hard enough, you, you can actually earn these positions. But I mean, that completely ignores like structural racism or like structural misogyny that keeps like marginalized voices out of these rooms. And so when he said that, like we don't need people of color behind the cameras in particular um he's saying that like hey if you were if you were actually a good enough filmmaker we would have chosen you regardless of your color but that's not how that's not like that does not really represent how diversity works and we need it both behind and in front of the cameras yeah i think something that people often respond to this with with this sort of conversation incredulously is saying so are you saying that like white men can't make good movies you know are you saying that's impossible um and that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I think the white guys can have made some of my favorite movies. And they made some pretty awful mediocre movies. <laughs> <laughs> but that it sort of, it really does affect what's shown on screen depending on who's behind the camera. So who makes the media really does impact what media gets made. And I think that um, there have been white male directors who have really worked hard to show um, realistic portrayals of of people, of women, of people of color on screen, and there are great examples of that. But that it's it's really not something you should just dismiss and say like, oh, we don't have to think about who's behind the camera. We should only think about who's in front of the camera, because those things are definitely interconnected. And I think the most one of the most like ugh, moments of this clip is that Matt Damon talks over Effie Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, he just he 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 shuts her down in 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 this in this way that's just so casual that like um that pe- privileged people just aren't aware of. And I think it's something that like we can watch and hopefully learn from that if we really do value diversity or like um listening to marginalized voices, we actually need to let them speak and listen to them and like really comprehend what is being said and not just let um, our own biases and privileges like override that. 
I feel like we need an emoji for a teachable moment. <laughs> what is what is a good what is a good teachable moment emoji? Could it be the one where it looks like the woman's like flipping her hair? Oh yeah. <laughs> like actually. Actually. <laughs> okay, that's my new teachable moment one. Actually. <laughs> so at the end of the show we talk about one thing we've watched, some one thing we've read and one thing we've listened to. So, Sarah, what have you been watching? Oh, uh, there's this really great little video I want to talk about, which is um, it's a satirical video starring Connie Britton, the actress who is in Friday Night Lights, uh, Nashville, and American Horror Story. And it's from the Misrepresentation Project. The video shows uh, Connie Britton. She's just staring at the camera, looking glamorous. We'll play a clip from it now. Hi, I'm Connie Britton. And after years of being asked about my healthy, shiny hair, I am thrilled to share my beauty secret with you. It's feminism. When used regularly, feminism has been known to produce amazing results, such as a woman's right to vote, a woman's right to her own body, a woman's right to become a kick-ass athlete, the Violence Against Women Act, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration Act, and more. So this video from the Representation Project is clearly poking fun at a couple different things. One um, is those like the trend of girl power advertising, like Pantene shampoo has this whole Shine Strong campaign where it's like, do you want to be an empowered woman? Use our shampoo, you'll shine strong. And this is a direct poke at that, as well as it ties into um, this campaign that the Representation Project is running that's called Ask Her More, hashtag Ask Her More. Um, that's aimed at reporters on the red carpet, trying to get them to ask actresses and female filmmakers about more than just their looks. So focus on uh, their talents, their acting abilities, their upcoming projects, not their hairstyles and their dresses and their shoes. And so they've been running this Ask Her More campaign, um, trying to get actresses specifically to push back and when we'll ask them about their hair secrets to instead talk about their work. That's a funny little clip. Rad. Right. <laughs> uh, so I just checked out this awesome book from the library. It's called Citizen by Claudia Rankin. And um, it's it's really a beautiful read. And I just started reading it. But so far, it seems to be exploring um, racism in America, uh, in particular microaggressions, and how they can like just kind of like build up and tear you down. So Claudia Rankin is a, a black female writer and uh i think she's no more as a poet i'm not as familiar with her work yeah and so right. like the little uh, pieces in hand they kind of seem like um prose poetry and they're most most of them are like set in the second person where it's talking like you are doing this and this is happening to you so it puts the reader in the narrator's spot and um just from like very small minor microaggression things um like having your friend say something racist to you but then not responding because you're kind of like a deer in headlights like how, how is this happening to me and then to talking about like um, psychological symptoms that uh, uh, that like doctors have uh, named that have to do with like how uh, daily dealing with daily racism can impact your health. So it's like exploring all these things in this really beautiful poetic way um, that you know because I feel like we often read a lot about um, racism in America, especially in particular with the Black Lives Matter movement um, in the past few years and police brutality. Um, but it's you know it's again it's cut and dry news newsy kind of style. But when Claudia writes about it, it's it's really uh, places you in this moment, and uh, she doesn't tell you how to feel 
per se, but she tells you um, like how the moment is. And yeah. as a reader, you can try to identify with it. I read Citizen last winter. I think it came out last fall in, in November, I believe, from Grey Wolf Press. And everyone was talking about it over Christmas. And I was like, I have to read this. So I picked it up. And it just, the book hits you like a freight train. You know, it's like so powerful. It goes straight to the heart. Um, but it's also, it's so beautifully composed. There's lots of white space on the pages. It's not a big, dense text. It's this sort of beautiful exploration of some really powerful stuff. All right, so the last thing we have for you on the show today is a special clip from um, Bikini Kill. Bikini Kill, uh, of course, epic, early 90s, riot girl band, you know, defined a movement and a generation. And <laughs> they're, they uh, are releasing this September, on September 22nd, they're releasing um, a demo tape that they made back in 1991 um, that has three songs that they originally cut off their demo tape just because they didn't have the space for them on the physical tape that they were recording on. And so it's pretty cool that um, the Bikini Kill is going back and reissuing their old stuff. And uh, I got the chance to talk to uh, Bikini Kill bassist. Uh, her name is Kathy Wilcox. And I did a short interview with her. We published the whole thing on bitchmedia.org. Um, but I just wanted to play a little clip from Kathy Wilcox talking about the demo tape and her thoughts on being a musician. And then we'll go straight into a song from the album, uh, which is called Revolution Girl Style Now. If you could go back and tell yourself some advice back then, what, what would you say? What would current um, Kathy go tell the Kathy who was who recorded this album? I would probably tell my younger self that a lot of people are going to be paying attention. <laughs> so not, not to put pressure on myself or something, but just like, you know, take the time to value what you do and that everything isn't, even though it's good to be kind of offhand about stuff, like it's also good to be very considered and to, and to sort of honor what you're doing in a way, like to take it seriously. And I'm not sure that when I was that young, I was taking it all that seriously because I honestly didn't think anybody would hear it. I just thought we'd make a demo cassette. Maybe we'd do one tour and maybe that would be it. Like I never thought we were going to make an actual record, you know, that or that we would do more than one tour. That kind of far-reaching, far-sightedness totally had no idea. So I guess that's what I would say to myself is like, consider that this might actually be longer than a year <laughs> that you might want to, you know, think about how you want to do this in terms of people are going to be talking about this for 25 years or something. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate.